Welcome to episode 212 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And while Stuart Baker is out claiming to be attending the RSA conference on the West Coast, uh, I will take over today's news roundup-only episode. Uh, it's great to be here with a number of colleagues. First of all, we have David Chris and Nate Jones, who are government and private sector veterans in this field. Uh, in October, David and Nate founded Culper Partners, a business consulting firm in the intersection of technology, national security, law enforcement, public policy, and regulation. Uh, now, David and Nate both bring a lot of experience to this field, as many of our listeners know. David served in the Justice Department in the last administration as the Assistant Attorney General in charge of the National Security Division from 2009 to 2011. Nate is a veteran of the Department of Justice and of the National Security Council's Counterterrorism Office. He also served as an assistant general counsel for Microsoft from 2013 to 2017. So it's great to have both of you here, David and Nate. Welcome to the podcast. It's our pleasure. Thanks Thank for you. having us. We're also joined by Maury Shank, uh, who's a regular. He's a former ma managing partner of Steptoe's London office. He's now an advisor to Steptoe on European technology and cybersecurity issues. Maury, uh, thanks for joining. Hello, Brian. And we have Pete Jadel, who's an associate in Steptoe's international regulation and compliance practice. Pete, welcome. Thanks, Brian. Good to be with you. Great. And I'm Brian Egan. I'm a Steptoe partner with our international regulation and compliance practice and the former legal advisor to the State Department and the National Security Council. Uh, now, it's uh, I think we say this every week, but this has truly been another wild week in Washington, D.C., and we're not even going to address uh, former FBI Director Jim Comey's imminent book release, uh, which has been dominating the airwaves for the last 24 hours. Um, I am going to note just very briefly something that came out earlier today, which is uh, a Commerce Department announcement that ZTE is back on the denial order list uh, for having lied to the government, apparently, in the course of its negotiations with the Commerce Department and the Justice Department over export control violations. So we won't say no more about that today, but uh, take a look at the Commerce Department website for that one. Uh, we're going to start, though, with the weekend's airstrike activities. So early Saturday morning Syria time, the United States, the United Kingdom, and France uh, launched a number of strikes on three alleged chemical weapons facilities in Syria, a research center, a storage facility, and a bunker facility. Uh, there was a U.N. Security Council meeting over the weekend. Ambassador Haley said that the United States is, quote, locked and loaded for future attacks in the event of additional chemical weapons use. A ton of media coverage, interesting legal questions about the legality of the strikes. Prime Minister May is appearing before the U.K. Parliament today to discuss that issue from the U.K. perspective. Um, but for purposes of this podcast, we're going to focus on one strain of reporting, uh, which has been a little bit hard to figure out whether it's merely rumors uh, or whether there's something more to it. And these are reports that have been coming out of uh, the U.K. tabloids initially, although now apparently confirmed by the U.K. government, of the possibility or maybe even the likelihood of Russian cyber attacks on the U.K. in retaliation for the strikes and perhaps uh, in retaliation for the U.K. accusing Russia of poisoning a former Russian double agent last month. 
now, Maury, maybe turning to you first, just to, if you have any insights from your side of the Atlantic that you can offer uh, on, on what you're hearing on the potential for cyber attacks by Russia in the United Kingdom. Well, you know, everybody is talking about Russian cyber attacks and cyber manipulation of elections and so forth for a long time. I read the same reports that you're referring to, Brian. I don't know what to believe. I, I can say there's been some strange, um, you know, Jeremy Fleming, the GCHQ director, has come out uh, in an unusual public speech and talked about the possibility uh, of this sort of thing happening. And even stranger, um, the UK National Security Advisor, Sir Mark Sedwill, wrote a letter um, on the 13th, which I guess is Friday, to Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, explaining the basis of the intelligence on which the British think um, that these uh, the Skripal attacks came from Russia. And I don't know. It's unusual to see this stuff. I um, Last time I uh, was on the podcast, I expressed doubt that there really is much evidence of this, and I didn't see much evidence in the letter. So without going on at too much length or appearing to be a conspiracy theorist, I don't know who to believe, and I'm suspicious of the British government claims. Mm. Uh, David, Nate, what do you what do you make of this? Um, you know, like Maury, I don't have much inside information. I do think, you know, on the one hand, you, you've seen Russia bluster before, right? I mean, you even saw this in, in advance of the Syria strikes where they were warning the U.S. of, of various consequences of a strike um, and, and have not taken action and, in fact, backed down a bit after that. But at the same time, we have seen Russia be very aggressive in this space. They clearly view cyber um, attacks as a, a tool in their arsenal that is is lower cost often than engaging in actual you know military force in in the physical world. And so, um, and they're they've proven quite adept and creative at causing problems and imposing pain on people. And so, I think, you know, from a government's perspective, you do have to take this seriously, and and start to, among other things, figure out how to deter Russia from engaging in this type of uh, malicious behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting to from the U.S. side, you saw the U.S. ambassador to Russia making it very clear that he warned Russia in advance of the locations of the strikes. Mm-hmm. The U.S. Uh, military has made it very clear that they went to some lengths to avoid any Russian casualties. Uh, it's been reported that there were no Russian missiles launched in response to the U.S. Uh, to the coalition attack. Uh, so there is some reason to think that maybe uh, this was handled in a way that will keep a lid on things. Yeah. Uh, but the, the warnings from the U.K. are uh, are definitely potentially concerning. Um, Maury mentioned the, the speech that uh, the GCHQ director, Fleming, uh, made last week. This is a, a rarity. Uh, this was the first public speech, I believe, that he's ever given in his career, I think is what he said. And he w- was more explicit in condemning Russia for the Skripal attack uh, on the double agent than I think the U.K. has been before. He also, though, talked about the U.K.'s efforts to shut down the ISIS communications infrastructure. Uh, he said that the U.K. has conducted a, quote, major offensive cyber camp- campaign against ISIS. He said it was consistent with domestic and international law and when our tests of necessity and proportionality have been satisfied. Uh, David, Nate, were you guys surprised by these comments? And, and what do you make of what the U.K. may have been doing in terms of offensive cyber campaigns against ISIS? 
You know, the the era of um, intelligence activity taking place completely in the dark uh, does seem to be uh, consistently uh, uh, getting less less powerful, um, particularly in the aftermath of Edward Snowden, but just more generally in the in the recent times, and particularly in the Trump era, there's just been a lot more disclosure mm-hmm. of what used to be secret intelligence activity by government officials and by others. So I think we're seeing more and more transparency and openness generally there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with respect to the um, you know attacks or efforts against ISIL, uh, Brian, you know this very well. There's there's legal issues in the United States involving the First Amendment and so forth when you're talking about taking down propaganda materials. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Brits have a little more leeway on that front legally. And then there's also a policy question whether you're just engaged in a fruitless game of whack-a-mole. <laughs> um, it appears if the Brits are talking about propaganda material that they decided it was worth a shot uh, and apparently did do something. Um, that is to be distinguished, of course, from cyber activity that involves a direct attack on UK infrastructure um, where I think there would be perhaps a stronger need to take action. But this seems like it might have been a propaganda-based uh, action. Yeah, the way that, that uh, Director Fleming described it, he said it, it was they made it almost impossible for ISIS to communicate its messages of hate uh, at various points in time last year. So maybe that's what that is what we're talking about here. Yeah, it seemed to yeah, even suggest very that. hard to do that successfully given how dispersed the Internet is. I, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that is is interesting uh, to think about is with the additional transparency, including from the U.K. now, you have more and more information coming out about what governments, not just the Russians, but again, the U.K. and others are doing. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that impacts international norms in this space where there's been a dearth of, of rules and a lot of people have bemoaned this over the years and as people start to engage in this activity and talk about it norms will start to to crystallize and, and we have to think about whether or not those things are good norms for the world to <laughs> that we want to live right. in yeah I completely agree I mean this is an area where the US not only the domestic law space but in the international law international legal policy space has figured, tried to struggle to figure out what what it believes uh, should be the appropriate norms here. And a number of U.S. companies have encouraged the government in sometimes competing ways about what those norms should be. So uh, definitely a space to to watch. Um, Let's turn back to the U.S., though, for another uh, highlight or um, maybe low light, depending on your perspective, of the (laughs) U.S. news cycle the past week. Uh, So earlier, uh, early last week, the FBI raided uh, Michael Cohen's home office and hotel room. Mr. Cohen is, of course, the pers- longtime personal attorney for President Trump, uh, the FBI reportedly seized uh, hard, doc- hard copy documents, digital documents, data, other materials. Uh, and this raid and the legal wranglings that we've heard over the past few days have added new vocabulary to the national lexicon. Uh, it made it to the Daily Show as well as to the legal blogosphere that really has nothing to do with Stormy Daniels. This is the, the use of a so-called taint team by the U.S. government to shield documents that may be protected by attorney-client privilege. And, David, uh, I know you have uh, a lot of experience in this space. Maybe you can walk us through what exactly a taint team is 
and what you can say about what you understand the government may be proposing here and what what uh, President Trump and Mr. Cohen may be arguing in response. Yes, sure. Um, first, just a little bit of background to understand what a taint team is. You have to sort of understand the, the two main ways the government gets evidence uh, in criminal cases. Uh, one way is by subpoena and the other is by warrant. Um, a subpoena is typically issued by a prosecutor acting on behalf of an investigating grand jury, and it's basically just a letter sent to a recipient saying, please deliver these documents by this date. Um, and its distinguishing feature is that the recipient of the subpoena is the one who gathers all the responsive materials um, and delivers them. And if the recipient doesn't think the subpoena is proper or if it calls for materials that shouldn't be delivered, say privileged materials, then he can go and challenge it in court and not turn the documents over. Um, a search warrant, by contrast, which is what was used in the Cohen case, is a much bigger deal. Um, it's issued by a judge, and it requires the government to show probable cause. And when it's issued, it lets the government actually go and grab the evidence up front by itself. So its distinguishing feature is that agents come to your home with guns and badges and the warrant itself, and they take your stuff. Um, and you can go to court and claim the warrant was invalid and try to prevent the government from using it against you in court, but meanwhile, the government has your stuff. So search warrants are more aggressive than subpoenas, and they're particularly more aggressive when it comes to the searches of lawyers, like Mr. Cohen, uh, who may have information that's protected by attorney-client privilege and whose clients may have constitutional rights to the effective assistance of their counsel, which could be compromised by the government searching the lawyer's files. So, finally, that brings you to a taint team, or as the government likes to call it, a filter team or privilege team, which is part of the special procedures that the Department of Justice has established for uh, searches of lawyers in these kinds of situations. And there's a set of standard procedures in the U.S. Attorney's Manual. Um, and it basically sets up a separate group of agents who are off in the corner, walled off by themselves, who review all of the seized materials, and they filter out the privileged information that would potentially taint the core investigative team that's actually working on the case. Mm -hmm. um, and the unusual thing in this case is that both the lawyer, Mr. Cohen, and his client, President Trump, have suggested that they themselves should function as the taint team here to review all the materials and decide which of them are privileged. Um, to my knowledge, that is not something that um, has been done, uh, certainly not something that is routinely done. Um, it effectively converts a warrant into a subpoena because it gives the the recipient of the of the demand for information the right to go mm -hmm. review and decide what's responsive. I see. Um, I don't think that's going to happen here. Mm -hmm. The real fight is probably about whether the government will use a taint team, as it tends to prefer, or whether some special master will be appointed by the judge to do the review. Mm -hmm. um, that, that certainly is not unprecedented, to have a special master doing the review, and then both sides can argue to that special master, you know, what is or isn't privileged. Um, but I have to say, uh, it was revealed in the government's papers um, that they have already done two searches of Cohen's emails, um, and it doesn't appear that any special master was used 
for those searches, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. which also could have implicated the privilege. And so that sort of suggests that maybe um, maybe a taint team is going to be the way this is handled here using the standard procedures, and, and we won't have a special master, but I guess we'll find out uh, this week. And you, as, a, as a lawyer, I can, I can appreciate the concern uh, that uh, a lawyer might have for the government uh, being the decider on what materials are privileged and what materials are not privileged. Um, what's your sense of how controversial these pr- procedures are? Are they widely accepted by the courts? Are there some limits that have been uh, uh, acknowledged in, in certain areas? Are there weaknesses in the system? And, you, David, you mentioned the special master procedure. How, how common is something like that used um, when there's a concern expressed about uh, whether the government can serve as a screen itself? Yeah, um, I think that um, the use of a taint team or a privilege or filter team, you know, it is enshrined in the standard DOJ procedures here, and it is used, I think, fairly commonly um, in these cases, which are themselves not all that common, because as I say, it, it involves a search warrant issued to a lawyer, which is not an everyday occurrence sure. to begin with. right. The, but it is, but it is when that happens, I think it is probably the dominant way it's dealt with. Um, but there have been cases, certainly, where special masters are appointed, and the U.S. Attorney's Manual, the standard Bible of internal DOJ procedures, does expressly contemplate the possibility mm-hmm. of a, a neutral third party, like a special master, uh, being appointed. So it's certainly not unheard of or unprecedented. The government's principal argument against President Trump or or Mr. Cohen doing the the taint team function is that, you know, we ought not have the fox guarding the chicken coop. Um, the, The idea being, hey, we got a warrant here precisely because we didn't trust him and some judge didn't trust him to turn over the materials on his own. That's that's why we got a warrant instead of a, a subpoena. But I suppose that can be flipped back, and what's sauce for the goose might be sauce for the gander, which is the defense would say, and, and typically does say, why should we trust right. the government to police what is privileged? Nonetheless, I think in most cases a, a government taint team is used, but in some cases they do use a special master, and that I think, again, that's probably what the real debate is in this case. Yeah. I think just um, one quick point to add is I think that's right, and I think the exclusionary rule is sort of how the court typically enforces that right, and it discourages the government from, um, you know, abusing this process uh, to its advantage. Um, it's a common process in the context of, of search warrants served on email providers, for example, mm-hmm. where the government is getting access to large amounts of information. And there, I think, where you see questions about um, plain view doctrine, for example, mm-hmm. when the Tate team's going through it, if they see evidence of other crimes, um, questions arise about whether or not they can pass that on to the investigators in the case or other investigators, uh, even though they may not have had uh, probable cause to obtain that specific information. And I think um, one of the interesting questions is, you know, 
how is technology changing some of this? And this mm-hmm. is a little bit separate and apart from the Cohen case, but um, technology uh, companies have, have often grappled with this. The courts are grappling with it, and mm-hmm. you're seeing a lot of this play out. Um, the Department of Justice, interestingly, issued guidance last year, which was went a little bit unnoticed, um, but it governed how they obtain information to belonging to corporations and other entities um, when they're using third-party email providers mm-hmm. and setting up special rules for how they do that internally. Um, And that's a case where you typically have the risk of running into privileged or other protected information that might be exempt from disclosure. Mm-hmm. And so they've, they've set up certain preferences in, in how they go about mm-hmm. that internally. And so it's interesting that I think you see the courts, you see Congress, you see even the Department of Justice grappling mm-hmm. with how this stuff works in, in, as mm-hmm. technology evolves. And as more, as these searches become the larger and larger amounts of data, the image of three or four people sitting around a table reviewing papers and, you know, <laughs> trying to figure out if the privilege applies is just wildly inaccurate Long at gone. this point. Yeah. Yes. Long uh, gone. This is algorithms and computers and analysts yeah. uh, sifting through terabytes of data sometimes. Um, so let's turn back to uh, Europe for a moment. Uh, Maury, uh, there have been some developments that maybe have been drowned out by the other news in the United States in the Schrems litigation uh, that uh, may be of interest to uh, the listeners of the podcast. Can you talk a little bit about what's going on in that litigation? Yeah, so uh, to review the, the, the history of the Schrems litigation, it started in Ireland and led to uh, an a European Court of Justice decision against Facebook, where Mr. Schrems had challenged the validity of Facebook's use of the safe harbor to transfer uh, personal information back to the United States. And he got probably a better result than he hoped for, that the ECJ entirely uh, invalidated the safe harbor. When that ha- happened, Facebook, like many other companies, turned to a vehicle called the EU Standard Contract Clauses to transfer information back to the United States. And since has added the privacy shield, which is a replacement for the safe harbor. But before the privacy shield was added, uh, Mr. Schrems went back to the Irish court to challenge the use of the standard contractual clauses. And this case um, was the Irish high court now referring questions on the validity of the standard contract clauses to the European Court of Justice. So we're going to have another ECJ decision on um on the standard contract clauses. I believe we'll later have one on the privacy shield. There are some uh, challenges to that pending. My own view is that it's unlikely that the standard contract clauses will be widely invalidated because that would disrupt the entire framework of EU foreign transfers. But there's a lot of uncertainty, particularly with respect to transfers to the United States. So the idea that the Irish court uh, referred this question to the ECJ is, is in and of itself not necessarily surprising. Would, would you agree with that? Uh, no, it's not at all surprising. Um, yeah, that's what happened in the Safe Harbor case, right. that the Irish court referred a series of questions on the Safe Harbor, and it was the ECJ decisions that were the ones that were important. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And we're and uh, even on the uh, the question that's now been referred to the ECJ, we're of course months away from uh, uh, any decision, maybe years, but by, by the ECJ. Yeah, I think it's um, probably around a year, is my guess. Okay. okay. So it's more. There's been news about this, um, but the messages largely don't panic at the moment. Right. Right. Um, okay. So. Uh, and in other developments, uh, this is turning to the China front, uh, where the administration 
uh, continues to churn on additional restrictions on Chinese investments. Uh, so you'll remember that in March, on March 22nd, President Trump issued an order in response to USTR's investigation into Chinese IP policies, which among other things, it established, uh, certain trade barrier tariffs and other trade restrictions, but it also called on the Treasury Department to consider additional restrictions on Chinese investments. Um, and Pete, Explain a little bit about what Treasury was asked to do and what are some of the options that we think they might be considering. Sure. Thanks, Brian. Um, so the Section 301 order, as it's called, that Brian was referring to, uh, tasks the, the Treasury Department uh, with addressing concerns ad- identified in that report um, about Chinese investment in important technologies and industries in the United States and uh, specifically called for the Treasury Secretary to use any authority available to him in order to uh, to impose the restrictions that would be called for. Um, we've considered, and another a number of other observers have looked at the possibility of using IEPA, the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, as the broad statutory authority through which uh, the Treasury Department could accomplish some uh, additional investment restrictions on China. And IEPA, of course, is uh, used most famously for imposing economic sanctions, uh, blocking, uh, restricting transactions. Uh, this would be a pretty, uh, potentially a dramatic departure from how CFIUS normal operates currently. Right. Well, it remains to be seen, you know, what this order will say. It's, you know, some some have said that it would, uh, you know, kind of operate like CFIUS. It may even be a tool for implementing through executive action the CFIUS reform legislation that's been bouncing around the hill. Um, so it could take a form, you know, uh, uh, that looks like CFIUS. It could be something, you know, potentially that OFAC, the um, um, Economic Sanctions Enforcement Agency, could implement um, if it were, you know, potentially more on the extreme end. There's a report this morning about the possibility of uh, restricting Chinese investment in the services sector broadly or potentially only the financial services sector. Um, so something like that you could imagine uh, could potentially be an OFAC um, authority, and that would bring bring mm-hmm. a whole slew of problems with it. So we, it remains to be seen how this will be implemented, but suffice it to say the administration is itching to do something in order to gain more leverage on China, mm-hmm. and IEPA is, without going quite so far as to call it a carte blanche for the president, gives him quite a bit of authority to craft these restrictions just how he sees fit. Okay, so that's another space to watch. Uh, the Treasury's uh, recommendations are due uh, next month uh, towards the end of May, uh, and we'll be watching that space here as well. Now, finally, uh, turning back to a topic that maybe seems almost quaint at this point, which is the encryption battles uh, between the United States government and the tech industry. Uh, now, uh, David and Nate, you guys remember that in, in 2016, the FBI, this was under the last administration, actually sued Apple to gain access to an encrypted iPhone that was used by the San Bernardino shooter. Uh, the lawsuit ended uh, rather shortly after it began when, when it turned out that DOJ could access the encrypted iPhone. Uh, and then we uh, kind of um, out of nowhere, in a way, a, a group of senators wrote a letter to the FBI last week saying, hey, why would you sue Apple? I mean, why, did, why didn't you do more to figure out if you could in- decrypt the phone in the first place? What's going on there? I'm sure. I mean, we have sort of no comment on Apple in particular, but last month the Inspector General of the Department of Justice issued a report 
that criticized some communications issues within the FBI about exactly whether and to what extent it really was flummoxed by the encryption and was uh, unable to break through. Um, and it's, I mean, it's been referred to in, in some corners as a sort of a damning exoneration of the Bureau. There was a finding by the IG that was no, no lying. There was no uh, intent to mislead the court or the American people about the exact extent of the Bureau's capacities here. Um, as you say, in the end, they, they did with some help find a way apparently to break through. Um, but it, it pointed out some challenges w- between two subunits within the Bureau and how they were communicating with one another um, to ensure that all of the best capabilities internally were really brought to bear. Um, and, you know, I think that's a, a challenge within any large bureaucracy, which is to make sure that all the constituent parts are working and playing well together and, and that the dots are being connected and that everybody's on the sort of same page about what the mission is and whether it can be achieved. Um, I don't think it sort of has broad long-term significance for the encryption debate, which I think is likely to keep going, because in any given case, the Bureau may or may not be able to break through. But, um, you know, in the in the run of cases, I think this is still a live issue um, and is going to continue to, to smolder and, and maybe flare up uh, as time goes on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that it it's it seemed to be tied to the the very report you talked about and uh it certainly doesn't uh, resolve the issue in in any way uh um well i think we all uh, can appreciate the the challenges of dealing with big bureaucracies uh where you often uh don't know what the office next to you might be thinking about something uh but um it's kind of a wake up call of uh, of of sorts um there, there have also been a couple of legal developments um, uh, on uh, in the case law. The lower courts have um, had a couple of interesting cases in the encryption decryption area. Uh, Nate, uh, what do you make of of the recent case law? You know, it's. I think one interesting aspect of this is that you know over the years, despite the the focus on this issue and and the importance of it on on both sides of of it. You, you've seen a general reluctance from Congress to wade into this and, and try to actually move legislation. And so, you know, I think what we're seeing is we've seen in other cases from, from Riley, um, on down where the courts are grappling with some of these issues at the intersection of law and technology and privacy, um, at a more rapid clip. And so I think in some ways we may be more likely to see a resolution of some of these difficult issues under um, existing law rather than Congress stepping in and changing the law. And um, and it's an area where, where Congress seems to be out ahead of, of them. And I think, um, you know, there are rumblings out of Europe a little bit as well that um, Europe may be uh, more keen to act in, in some cases than the United States is on the legislative front. And so um, so I think in terms of where to watch mm-hmm. um, f- on this issue, it may be more interesting to watch the courts and some other governments than to watch the U.S. Congress mm-hmm. going forward. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, you, we've got challenges. We've, obviously, the, the government's challenge we just talked about. On the one hand, we have uh, private parties challenging government actions. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, and you have Europe, uh, which is seemingly more willing to wrestle with this on the parliamentary side mm-hmm. um, and on policies that affect the United States. Yeah. Uh, so that, yeah, that does seem like a, a place to watch. Okay, well, uh, thank you very much to David Chris, Nate Jones, Maury Shank, and Pete Jidel for joining today's podcast. This has been Episode 212 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. Uh, as a reminder, the podcast is seeking a part-time intern at our Washington, D.C. office. If you are interested, please click on the link on our podcast page. And don't forget, if you suggest a guest interviewee and they join us in the show, we will send you one of the highly coveted Cyberlaw Podcast mugs. So please do continue to send your suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. We will welcome Stuart back from RSA next week, and we hope that you will join us as well as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. (laughs) 